We are only five years into the 21st century and our memories are already crowded with the devastation and suffering that has been caused by numerous natural disasters. Devastating earthquakes have buried entire villages in India and Pakistan. A tsunami in Southeast Asia raked countless victims off of coastal shores, drowning them in the sea. Mudslides have recently buried entire towns, and hurricanes have devastated coastal regions. Natural catastrophes render this world a place of suffering and deprivation. We lose track of what even happens in this world. But despite nature's wrath, it is what people do to one another that constitutes the greatest of tragedies. In these last five years, just run through it in your own mind. Our memories fill with reports of war and genocide and terrorism, with memories of corruption and abuse and betrayal and hate and neglect. As a Bible-believing church, we don't find this all very mysterious, let it be said. We know that the source of all of this is sin. We've come to identify that. God has revealed that in His Word. We know where it all starts. And we know that the answer to this sin-sick world is Jesus Christ. But what is generally less obvious to God's people is what on earth God has to do with all this evil. We're laying some groundwork in these days for a coming series through the book of Exodus, and I think a solid answer to this question will serve us very well. In fact, I think in some respects it's absolutely necessary. What on earth does God have to do with evil? More importantly than simply preparing for a study through the book of Exodus, we must understand God's relationship to evil if we are going to thrive in our relationship to Him. This is not something many Christians think about very often, it wouldn't seem. But we need to understand this relationship between God and evil is very important for our walk with God. Otherwise, there is a distance and a disconnect that can come in, and we can look at God in some aspects and some realms and dismiss Him from others. And what happens is that our own relationship with Him is compromised. What does God have to do with evil, and what does it matter? A fitting point of departure is found in the words of Joseph, which we considered last week. And I'd like to bounce off of his words in Genesis chapter 50 as we consider this concept. Genesis chapter 50. Remembering the context out of hatred and bitter jealousy, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery when he was a teenager. And through a series of sweet and bitter providences, Joseph eventually became a chief ruler of Egypt. At that time, the most powerful kingdom on earth. Following the death of their father, Jacob, Joseph's brothers came to him pleading that he would not take vengeance upon their lives for having sold him into slavery. We read at verse 18, Genesis 50 and verse 18, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. 
But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Genesis begins with Adam and Eve seeking to take God's place. The book ends on this hopeful note of a man refusing to take God's place. But Joseph's spiritual insight is greater than simply knowing his place in the universe. Joseph understands that God is always the primary cause behind every human decision. And so he responds. Verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended to harm me. We could translate the Hebrew phrase, you devised evil against me. And the word evil is translated variously as harm or injury or misery or distress or evil in the Hebrew Scriptures. So you devised to harm and injure me, to bring misery and distress into my life. Joseph's brothers willingly and intentionally acted to do this to their brother. On the day they sold him into slavery, God was a thousand miles from their thoughts. It was all about jealousy, it was all about bitterness, it was all about their father, and it was all about this hated brother, Joseph. And here comes an opportunity. We can sell him into slavery. That's all that's on their mind. They're not thinking of God. They're thinking of themselves. And they willingly choose to harm their brother in a most hideous manner. But Joseph had long figured out that God is never uninvolved in human affairs. You intended evil, but, the next phrase in verse 20, God intended it for good. The word it has only one antecedent, and that is evil. You intended it for evil. You intended what you did to produce evil, and in fact it did, but God intended that same act of evil for good. The act of selling Joseph into slavery had two causes with two purposes. We need to see this as they overlay one another. Joseph's brothers acted with the purpose of harming their brother, while at the same time and in the very same act, God purposefully chose to bring about good, namely, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So both are working in tandem. God intended to preserve the people of Israel in Egypt for 400 years, Genesis 15, 13. And he chose to do so by permitting Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. They sinned, but God was at work in their sin to bless the nations of the earth through Abraham, Genesis 12, 1-3. Joseph said earlier in chapter 45, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Wow. Again, we know how these stories work out, and it's hard for us to get back into them. But consider your own siblings selling you into slavery, and then saying to them some years later, you didn't do it, God did it. That's a robust faith. And may I suggest that it is an accurate view of all that happens in God's world. You force me to leave my father. You strip me of my home. 
my freedom, my culture, my identity. You forced me to walk off the gangplank and to drop into a sea of despair, but God meant it all for good. I love Von Rod's statement on this. Even where no man could imagine it, God had all the strings in his hand. Now we need to be very careful here. It's easy to dismiss this passage as an isolated event. May I say to you, this is not an isolated event. This is how God's universe works. The strings are always in his hands. No sinner ever schemes alone. No sinner ever plots with sovereign power. And no sinner ever has the last word. But that brings us face to face with quite a problem, doesn't it? That brings us face to face with a God who orchestrates all that happens in a world that is filled with sin and tragedy and suffering. So how do we conceive that? Is God a master troubleshooter? who cannot ultimately control evil, but who is capable of working with it once it happens, if this is the case, then God is certainly not omnipotent. Or is God capable of stopping evil, but does not care to do so? If this is the case, God's goodness seems deficient. How does God relate to evil? Let me just offer a few propositions, ideas that we have considered before and understand, but issues that I think we need to stake clearly in our personal lives and through our study of Scripture. The first is this. God chose to create a world in which sin would be. God chose to create a world in which sin would be. The Bible reveals that God is omniscient. In other words, God intuitively and absolutely knows all things past, present, and future, both real and potential. Before God created the world, He knew everything about everything that would ever happen, as well as knowing every potential thing that could have happened but would not. Let's look at Matthew chapter 11 and verse 21, where this comes out in a very interesting conversation. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 21 comes in, a, in an interesting way. It's a very heavy passage, very heavy word on the lips of Christ. But notice how this comes out, that he knows all what is real as well as what is potential. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Matthew eleven twenty-one. 21. Woe to you, Bethsaida, if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Both the real and the potential is here. Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. Had they received 
this kind of revelation would have repented, but they did not receive that kind of revelation. Now, they received all the revelation that was necessary to turn to God, but they spurned that revelation. Who is it that orchestrates the revelation they will receive? God knows all things real and potential. This means that although God knew every sin and every catastrophe that would take place in human history, He chose to bring this world into existence. God chose to create a world in which sin would be. He knew what He was doing when He said, let there be light. Second, God is by nature free of all sin. Those two must go together. God is by nature free of all sin. James chapter 1. We refer often to James in defending this point because it's said so simply. that The entire Bible obviously brings out this point over and over again that there is no sin in God of any shape or form. God is by nature free of all sin. Notice how James puts this so well in verse 13. When tempted... No one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. So there is nothing in God's nature that responds to or is drawn away by evil. God cannot tempt anyone to sin. He does, however, ordain the circumstances of our lives with full knowledge of how His creatures will respond to the temptations they encounter under those circumstances, as Matthew 11 indicates. So there is no sin in God, there is no temptation in God, although He orchestrates and knows the sin that will be. Jeremiah chapter 32 Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 30. Verse 30. The word of the Lord has come to Jeremiah. And God says in Jeremiah 32 and verse 30, The people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Indeed, the people of Israel have done nothing but provoke me with what their hands have made, declares the Lord. God then lists evidences of Israel's infidelity. And we notice at verse 35, as he gives another example, verse 35, They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech, though I never commanded nor did it enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing and so make Judah sin. The Hebrew reads here, though I never commanded them and not she entered into my heart. This wickedness never entered into the heart of God. It has no part in Him. The sin of child sacrifice does not originate with God. It originates in the depraved heart of man. God is by nature free of all sin. How do we bring these two ideas together? That there is no sin in God, there is no temptation in God. Or he never tempts anyone. And yet, God wills that sin be. 
the only way that seems to be possible for us to work this out is to say that there is a twofold sense of the will of God. In the first sense, God never wills sin, and in the second sense, God wills every sin. In the first sense, God never wills sin in the sense that He never desires it. He never enjoys it. He never tempts or commands anyone to do evil. He never commits evil, rejoices in evil, or is culpable for sin. No sin has ever found its source in God. But in a second sense of the term, God does will sin. That is, God decrees the presence of evil. And God uses evil to accomplish His purposes. And we will, as we come into the book of Exodus, see a very clear evidence of that. For God will command Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, and God will harden Pharaoh's heart. God wills, He wishes, He desires for Israel to be let go. He wants the slavery to end. He commands that it would end. Yet He hardens Pharaoh's heart, which says that God chooses to extend to Pharaoh the freedom to choose His course of action, which He does and continues to keep Israel in bondage. Now I ask you, how have you thought of this concept in the past? I think it's very common for Christians to believe that God has nothing to do with the evil of this world. And I think if that is your thought, then really you have a distorted view of God. What is more, you have really not read your Bible very closely at all. And it is amazing to me how many times I read through the Bible before I ever saw these passages. It's just like they just went right through the eye gate and right out the ears and never sat. You just don't see these things. And I think in part we have to come to the maturity to understand them. But I know as a, as a young man reading the Bible, I never saw this. But it's there everywhere. We just have to stop and listen. And it's very obvious. I've got no secretive passages to share with you. But let's look at them from the standpoint of God's involvement in evil. Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1 and verse 1. There is living in the land of Uz a man whose name is Job, who is blameless and upright and fears God and shuns evil. Job 1 and verse 2, he has seven sons with three daughters and he owns 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the east. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. By the way, that's not a throwaway conversation point. God's asking Satan what he's been up to, and Satan has to answer. 
pretty nebulous, isn't he? But he's the one doing the answering to God. Verse 8, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. God knows if Satan's considered Job. He's not fishing for information that he doesn't have. He's engaging Satan in conversation. And it works. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the works of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well. Then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Don't touch him. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. When he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off and put the servants to the sword. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Have you met anybody in this world who's had that many troubles? Some of the things that I've said here this morning are very courageous in the sense that I know what some have suffered in our congregation. And I know that there's much suffering I know nothing about in this fallen world. But I have never run into anybody that suffered as deeply as Job. And so I say with courage and with confidence, though it is hard to say what Job says about his own suffering. Job got up in verse 20 and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Unless we jump in here and go, Hold on, Job. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes here. God didn't do this. Satan did this. You've got to understand there's more going on than you see. Job says the Lord took away, and the text helps us in verse 22 to say that he's right on track. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. The Lord had taken away by the means of evil. 
Does Job say, I've had such bad luck today? Does he blame blind chance? Does he say, Satan is behind this? Satan is behind it. But that's not what he says. A natural disaster snuffs out the life of his ten children and takes all that he has, and he attributes the tragedy to the hand of God. These violent marauders come in and they kill people, murdering his servants, and Job says, God took my camels and my servants. Did he do the right thing in all of this? Job did not sin. Chapter 2. On another day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. How many times have you read that in the Bible and didn't read that? You incited me against him. Skin for skin, Satan replies in verse 4. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand. Whose hand? Stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands. Did you see that interplay? You strike out your hand, and God says to Satan, he's in your hand. It's both and. So Satan, verse 7, went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the sole of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Job saw that the trouble came ultimately from God. And the text of Scripture says that it is God's hand who strikes Job. It does not say that God refused to strike Job, but Satan took over. Acting against the will of God. There is a sense in which that is perhaps true. But in the ultimate sense, it is God who takes the credit for Job's suffering. And Job says that this trouble came from God and does not sin. He realizes the hand of God was behind the suffering. We see other evidences of God's involvement with the demonic realm and the evil that takes place and is initiated there. 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22 have we read this passage? 1 Kings 22, we have the godless King Ahab of Israel inviting King Jehoshaphat of Judah to join him in war against the king of Aram. In 1 Kings chapter 22, we read at verse 4, the second part of the verse. 
Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, and my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, first seek the counsel of the Lord. Okay, we're going to go to war against this king. Can we talk to God about this first? Ahab doesn't care to talk to God, but Jehoshaphat does, and he says, can we, can we have some prayer here and see if we're really on the right page with God's purposes? So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. You know, this is pretty easy to read through. We know what the king wants. He brings us into his throne room and says, What do you think I should do? And we tell him what he wants to hear. It's a way to keep your job as a prophet in Ahab's administration. But Jehoshaphat isn't quite satisfied. Verse 7, he says, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? Ahab says, Yes, there is. But he grumps that this Micaiah never prophesies in his favor. Eventually, Micaiah is summoned and eventually tells the king that this campaign against Aram is doomed for failure. Verse 17. Then Micaiah answered and said, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me but only bad? Micaiah continued, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on His throne with all the hosts of heaven surrounding Him, standing around Him on His right and on His left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this, another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him by what means, the Lord asked. I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours says Micaiah to the king, the Lord has decreed disaster for you. You're going down, Ahab. Israel will be without a king today. That's the word of the Lord. And how does it come about? God is seated on His sovereign throne in verse 22, and he verbally dispatches this lying spirit to carry out his deceptive plan. The faithful prophet Micaiah does not blush to conclude, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. Put it with James. God never tempts anyone to sin. He is free of tempting influence. However, if it happens, God is behind it. He's the ultimate cause. God put a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. I say again, frankly, I read that passage many, many times before that lodged in my head. 
Micaiah is right, verses 24 and following. And in verse 34, even a carefully disguised Ahab could not escape the random arrow, and I put that word in quotation marks, the random arrow that flew from the hand of God to fulfill Micaiah's prophecy in verse 28. The king died that day. A random arrow lodges at a spot in his armor, an empty spot, and kills him. Let me demonstrate once more. First Chronicles chapter 21. First Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1. This isn't troubling to our understanding at all. It's a sad event, but we read in 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 1 that Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and to the commanders of the troops, Go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan. Satan tempts David to act without authority from God. Specifically, Satan tempts David to number his troops, which was an act of pride and a sign of dependence upon himself and his might and his power. David is drawn away by his own lust and enticed, James 1.14. What did God have to do with this satanic temptation of David? 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24, recounting the very same event. 2 Samuel 24 puts it this way. 2 Samuel 24, again the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he incited David against them saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So what the chronicler says is Satan's enticement. The author of the books of Samuel says was God's enticement. One more example, which we know well. But let's remember it and read it as the scripture presents it in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 and verse 3. Luke chapter 22 and verse 3 deals with the betrayal of Jesus Christ. And we read here in Luke 22 and verse 3 that then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. Now, who is Judas serving here? Quite obvious, isn't it? His own selfish purposes, he's serving the purposes of Satan. And so are they, verse 5. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. Do you get the sense here that anybody has a knife at their back? They were delighted. They've been wanting to bring Jesus down. Judas sees this opportunity and in his greed, he grasps it. So he, he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. We see him scheming and planning to bring about his evil purpose. And it works. Acts chapter 2. 
I read this verse often and I hope it lodges in your brain for the rest of your life and we never forget it. Because it says so much. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God's set purpose and foreknowledge is the greater cause, the primary cause of Christ's deliverance to those who crucified him. But in that, you put him to death by the hands of wicked men. God's eternal purposes to have Christ suffer was initiated by Satan and carried out by the evil choices of people, and God wept. This evil resulted in the sacrifice of Christ, securing the redemption of God's people, all according to the plan of God. And so this text provides a window into the way that God operates this world and all of its evil. We have here what is called dual causality. God is the primary cause behind every human decision, which is the secondary cause. He permits them to run with the opportunity, and they crucify His Son, all the time God knowing that through that means He would provide redemption for His people. There is a dual cause. And secondly, a word we use often is compatibilism. That is... That human freedom and God's electing purposes work together without one controlling the other. Although God ordains every human choice, human beings act willingly. They fully want to do what they are ordained to do. Human freedom and divine predetermination are compatible concepts which work in tandem with one another. We see this in our understanding of the person of Christ, for instance. Was Jesus able to sin? He chose not to sin. He had to work and to strive not to sin. But we do know that in His divine nature, He was ultimately incapable of sin. There is no sin in God, and He was fully God. So He was fully free. He chose not to sin, yet was incapable of sinning. Let me ask another question. When we go to heaven, will we be able to leave? There's no thought in our minds that heaven's gates are locked on the outside of the gate, that we can't get out, that we're somehow bound there. We're there willingly and freely and desire to be there, but we can't get out. God has ordained and chosen that this is where we will spend eternity and we will want to be there. The two work together. Human freedom and divine sovereignty. This is everywhere. This is not only in the events of the crucifixion of Christ. This is the way we are to see our world. Salvation itself operates this way. 1 Peter chapter 2. Among many other passages, I refer here because it's fairly simply stated. 
First Peter chapter 2 and verse 7. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, that is Christ, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Why do some stumble at the cause of Christ? Reason, they reject Christ. Why do they stumble? Reason, they disobey the message. They are fully culpable. What does God have to do with this rejection of His gospel, which is also what they were destined for? All we can do is chew on it. But let me warn you as we bring our thoughts to close this morning, let's concentrate for a few more moments. It is dangerous to your spiritual health to fail to consider the relationship between God and evil. It's dangerous. It's not an easy concept to understand. There's all kinds of questions that remain in our minds, and we, and we can go off into wrong directions, such as fatalism or absolute human freedom, denying the sovereignty of God. There's all kinds of dangerous dead ends. We will never have all the answers, perhaps, as to why God ordains evil and how He remains free of it, although He uses it in His purposes. But we must remember this. God reigns with sovereign authority over all things. And if we don't come face to face with the relationship between God and evil, we don't say that. God reigns supreme over some things. God reigns supreme when I can see His hand of mercy upon me. Thank God that light turned green at just the right time. God reigns in heaven. Praise Him for it. Thank God for providing that raise and pay. Thank God for providing this opportunity for our family or for my kids. Or so, then God reigns supreme, but when evil reigns, we just forget about Him. We don't know where He is, and we don't really want to ask the question as to where He is. This is dangerous for our faith to not come face to face with this question. No evil has ever visited this world against the permissive, overarching decree of God. And if this concept is not settled in our minds, then our vision of God is too small. If God wills to stop sin and He does not, then He's weak. And if God rejoices in the presence of sin, then He is unloving and not good. Let's admit we do not know how to run a universe. And we may never have all the answers to our questions but we have to ask these two. Is God unloving? You see, what happens is we start to establish our own standards to prove God's love. If God is loving, then He must demonstrate it by doing this. But God has given us one proof. He says in 1 John 3 and verse 16, look at the cross. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. 
If I stand and demand of God that he must prove his love by saving all people, or he must prove his love by showing that he's never had anything to do with evil, he must prove his love by my life turning out the way that I want it to turn out, then we are holding God to a test that is wrong. We are taking his answer and we're trashing it because God holds up one answer and says, all of your investigation is meaningless if you miss this. You must look to Jesus Christ hanging on the cross because it is there that I have demonstrated my love. Does he love? He does. Well then, is God perhaps not all-powerful? Sin prevails against his will. If God, in no sense of the term, wills for sin to be, then who does? Satan? Man? Well, why does God not step in and stop Satan and stop humanity from their sin? If the problem is not with God's love, then the only conclusion is that God is not able to stop sin. And the result is a God who is locked in a dualistic struggle against evil. Fighting, striving, hoping to beat Satan up, but never always able to do so. In fact, tsunamis and hurricanes and abuse and sin and war, genocide. He's not really winning a whole lot of battles, is he? Listen, is the God of Scripture that we have looked at a God who is in a dualistic struggle with evil? Fighting it on its own terms? He's a God who in the book of Job says, Satan, here's your rope. And that's the end. Satan, I'll give you a little more rope. And then you're done. Who will go and convince Ahab to go to war? You go. You will succeed. We have a God here who stand there fighting evil on equal terms. No, we have a God in heaven who is orchestrating all. And so we're going to have to just humble ourselves before the text of Scripture and say, God is a God of absolute love. And he is also a God who chooses for evil to be for his own reasons. He has everything to do with everything. He works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his good will. One thing we must remember is that God is not done yet. He's still working. And so we come back to Joseph and we see this man in this great suffering he saw in the end the hand of an almighty and loving God working to bring his people to Egypt and protecting them there. In all of the slavery, the betrayal by Potiphar's wife, his betrayal by Pharaoh's cupbearer, all of the misery, the very best years of his life spent in slavery. And Joseph comes to understand God's hand was in it all for good. Joseph's life was not an isolated case. His life was a revelation of how God works at all times, how God is working in your life and mine. Someday, whether it is here or whether it is in eternity, we too will see how God works all things together for good. All things.
all things. All things. Evil will never triumph over the purposes of God. Rather, the saving goodness of God will triumph over evil. So if you come into this congregation today, and you would say, I don't know that I have a relationship with this God. It is vital that you get on His side. You're not going to be able to do that on your own, but with His help, with His grace, with His mercy, you need to come to understand that God sent His Son to die, not merely as an example, but as a substitute to pay the penalty of sin. He rose from the dead, demonstrating, it's no mystery, demonstrating His love and demonstrating His power. He is all-loving and He is all-powerful and He has provided a way of forgiveness from sin which you must embrace. And for those of us who know the Lord as Savior, we are taught to trust His hand and press toward glory. It is a world of struggle and sin. There are people who harm us. There are things that do not work the way we would like them to work. But we are called to press on and to hope in the promises of God, knowing that all things work for the good of those who love Him in the end. Keep trusting. Keep walking. That's our only hope in suffering. And let's turn that equation around and look not only at what others have done to us, but realize if you are with me, I'm in a hopeless spot when it comes to the sins of my life. How could any good come of my sin? We ask that question if we're honest. And we wonder. But even in that, we can have the confidence that God is working all things together for good. Even our sin takes place according to His design. We should not want it. It gives no excuse. What a ridiculous way to respond to that. Oh, therefore I can go ahead and sin. I have had people tell me that. That makes absolutely no sense at all. Because God knows what I'm going to do, I therefore have a license to sin. That's called reason corrupted by depravity. That makes utterly no sense at all. But it gives us hope, does it not? Because I would look at my sin and stack it up together in a block and say, that is an utterly dark and hopeless picture. There is nothing good in it. And there isn't anything good in it in itself. But I have the hope to know that even my sin is working out in the purposes of God for good. It should make us want to do right and to follow God's leading as He sanctifies us through sin and through righteousness and through everything that takes place in our life. He is working out His story. He's working it out to perfection. We have to trust Him and we have to keep walking in faith. Let's bow for prayer. Father, 
I realize when we talk about matters like this, we really stir up an awful lot of concern, confusion perhaps, difficulty. But Lord, when it comes right out of your word, we rejoice to have our faith troubled and our minds stretched and our souls tested. And perhaps there's some right now who are really fighting with the fact that they're not sure they like the God that the Bible reveals. Father, show them your greatness and help us to run to the cross. As these matters trouble our soul and confuse us and convict us and challenge us, may we run to the cross. May we see there the example of your love and your power. And as we run from that cross, may we run to the empty tomb and know that you are God of absolute love and absolute power. And may we, in this moment, humble ourselves and say, you are greater than we. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways. And we must, in the end, cling to you in faith and trust your promises. And I pray for those who suffer trial and who have suffered abuse and misuse and tragedy and difficulty in their life. May they come to the place of Job. May they come to the place of these texts of Scripture and be able to say they can trust your hand. No matter what the trial, you will in the end prove faithful and bring about good. May we cling to that. And for any that know you not as Savior, Father, bring them to saving faith, I pray, in the promises of a sovereign God. Through Christ we pray. Amen.